podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Today's topic is one about which many of you know a lot more than I do. Uh, In fact, it's very likely that uh, those of you out there who are not professional Byzantinists uh, know a great deal more about this than those who are. Uh, So this is a reversal of our (laughs) normal hierarchy of knowledge. Specifically, we are talking about the representation of Byzantium in video games um, and the way in which video games, uh, through their mechanics and structure, process historical reality. I will confess that I do not play video games, at least not currently. Uh, The last time I did so was um, an American institution called an arcade, um, and the games were uh, Pac-Man and Space Invaders. And at the outer edge, there was something called Dragon's Lair, which was like a cartoon that you played anyway. It's been a long time. And I understand that video games have changed uh, quite a bit since then. And if I were to dive into this area more than I did in preparation for this episode, I would face a learning curve uh, about as steep as GameStop stock uh, right now. And I imagine that many of you listening to this podcast, especially if you are professional Byzantinists, are in a similar situation. Um, This is a topic that you maybe have heard about, but you don't really know how it works. So I wanted to briefly present two arguments for why this matters um, and why those of us who teach and research Byzantium should uh, pay more attention to it. The first argument is that many of our students come to us, they take our classes, having already played these games and in some cases stimulated by the games to actually take courses uh, in this or that area of history which they have enjoyed playing uh, in a game. Uh, They might not often admit that to us, but I think it's far more the case than we might imagine. Uh, And I think it's important for us to know how the games represent the cultures that we teach, Uh, because these shape the assumptions and the expectations that our students uh, bring to our courses. And I think that to some degree we should be teaching, uh, you know, toward the particular students that we have and their sort of background knowledge, such as it is. In fact, what I've realized is that on some online discussion groups, uh, you know, chats or message boards or whatever, There are occasionally very extensive and even heated discussions about this or that aspect of Byzantium that gamers um, have precisely from the experience of playing the games and trying to match the games to what they read about Byzantium in whatever sources they have. And occasionally I have been made aware of these online discussions uh, that take place, this is very important, Outside the view of professional Byzantinists, for the most part, I imagine there are always some overlap between you know graduate students in the field who are also gamers, um, and it's largely through such channels that these um, discussions are leaked to me. But I think it's fairly interesting to know that there's a whole world of discussion about our field going on out there that is not immediately apparent to most professionals in the field. I, I find that quite intriguing. Uh, promising uh, even in some ways. And the content of those discussions has actually been intriguing. It's been a number of years uh, since I got 
the last leak <laughs> from what was going on in that other sort of parallel universe. The second argument I'll make is that the video games in question, as you'll understand from the discussion, are basically attempts to model civilizations. Now, obviously, through certain filters and goals that the games require or, or incentivize. Nevertheless, the games are a form of computer modeling um, of historical processes. And right now, as I gather from the conversation you're about to hear, that modeling is still, like, compared to what historians ideally should be doing, fairly rudimentary and kind of clunky in the in the parameters that it sets up and the way it, it aligns goals with incentives and so forth. Yet the genre of the modern video game, such as it exists today, is very new. Uh, and computer technology and sophistication of modeling is increasing very fast, uh, certainly at, at a rate that's faster than professional historians are developing models. And I have already seen at professional conferences um, historians trying out various kinds of computer modeling for, say, battles and campaigns, where they're, you know, they're trying to um, factor in all of the parameters that might influence the behavior of individuals and armies uh, in ways that are both uh, descriptive and normative. And yes, those models seemed rather rudimentary, but uh, given the pace of investment in them, and especially in computer science, uh, as I said, they're, they're developing at a faster pace than the rest of us, even if they're a little bit behind right now. And uh, who knows, in 10 or 20 years, uh, what we might be able to do with computer modeling. And I, I getting a glimpse from afar that the video games in question um, are exploring all of those kinds of parameters um, and testing them out, albeit from a gaming perspective for now, but who knows what kind of promise the technology holds for the future. My guest today is Troy Goodfellow, uh, who is known to many in the uh, video game community. He's uh, very active online, discussing, exploring, and presenting many aspects of the video game experience. Uh, he works for a video game design company called um, Paradox Interactive, um, and as he'll explain, um, and I, I think he's the ideal person, he, he was the ideal guest to bring uh, to the podcast to discuss these issues, um, specifically uh, the question of the representation of Byzantium and other pre-modern civilizations, but also the way in which the games, the mechanics of the games sort of structure the historical experience as it's filtered through the game. So uh, thank you to Troy for coming onto the podcast. Uh, also for my colleague Marion Cruz for agreeing to sort of co-host it. Uh, help me write up the questions and explain a lot of fundamental things about this field uh, to me, uh, which I didn't know. Thanks also to many of you out there, listeners, who sent me comments and advice and links uh, in preparation for this uh, episode. I really appreciate it. And thanks also to Medievalist.net for, for hosting this podcast on their site as well. Uh, here then is uh, our conversation with uh, Troy Goodfellow. Troy Goodfellow, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. And we also have Marion uh, back again, who's going to help me <laughs> because I know very little about this topic and he knows a little bit more. Hi, Marion. Yeah, I'm the translator. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, Troy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? 
and what it is that you do, because I don't think that it's convertible into academic terms. I, I'd probably botch it badly. Um, well, I have a PhD in political science, actually, uh, originally, but I don't use it uh, for anything. I have my my current job, my day job, is I do public relations for a Swedish video game company called Paradox Interactive. They're best known for making games about history, uh, games about the early modern era or ancient Rome, or most recently about uh, the medieval era, Crusader Kings 3, which was released in uh, last fall to very high acclaim um, and great success. And we were very happy about that. I also, before that, I was a games journalist for a long time and a games blogger and solo games podcaster about the subject of strategy games in general, often historical strategy games, but not just historical strategy games. So I've been around and playing video games like on the computer since my undergrad. So we're talking the original civilization in like the early nineties. I've been doing this for a very, very long time and um, writing about history and games and now working on history and games. Uh, so Marion had said something to me back when we were discussing this episode that struck me, I, I had no idea, that the video game industry is huge and larger even than Hollywood, like in terms of revenue or something, right? It kind of, our industry likes to throw those numbers around, uh, but it really depends on how you measure it. I mean, when people calculate that, they're including things like people buying PlayStations and people buying Xboxes, they're including hardware. Hardware. But when people talk about Hollywood, they don't talk about, well, they don't throw in how many TVs you buy or how many oh. movies. So it's, so it's kind of a fuzzy thing, but it is a very large industry. It is increasingly, um, especially if you look at video game streaming on Twitch and YouTube, it's where a lot of youth are, are going for entertainment first. Um, for the longest time, the games industry focused on what people want to play. And now there's uh, some interest in what people want to watch. So you have the growth of games that are kind of designed for a communal watching experience, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, it is a transformation in the genre. And as someone who does PR and marketing, it has certainly changed the way we promote and talk about our games. Um, and the type of lessons we want to communicate to the audience and to the industry at large. Uh, but yes, it is a growing and it's a fact, it's a very quickly growing industry. Um, when I joined Paradox, I was employee 150, and that was seven years ago. And now the company is over 500 people, and it's the largest publisher in Northern Europe. And it's um, just exponential growth uh, at a ridiculous rate. And it's, it's exciting and a little scary. Right. And well, given what you just said, it's no surprise that they're including more Byzantine material than Hollywood does <laughs> so, <laughs> so far. Yeah, no, if you're growing that fast, you need material. Um, so my understanding is that there are generally two kinds of games when it comes to, let's say, the appearance of Byzantine material in them. And they are respectively large scale strategy games where you're playing like a state or a kingdom and you're in rivalry with others on that scale and you're looking at a map, right? And others that are more sort of street level action like Assassin's Creed, that's the one that I always knew as the, you know, the video game where Byzantium or Constantinople at least appears because students would tell me when I asked them, why are you taking this course? <laughs> 
<laughs> they would say, well, Assassin's Creed, I didn't know what that was. Right. Um, so am I right? Are those the sort of two kinds of categories? Pretty much, but that's kind of true for history in general. Uh, history games in general, not just Byzantine history, will pop up largely in strategy games, not just map strategy games uh, like Civilization, uh, our games, Crusader Kings, Europa Universalis, uh, the forthcoming Humankind from Amplitude. These are on-screen map games. Then you also have real-time strategy games, things like Age of Empires, uh, Age of Kings, Rise of Nations. Um, these are games where you move around little people on the map. You build buildings and you move little small armies on the map and the small armies run into each other and they kill each other. Um, sometimes you'll have war games, games that are specifically about a specific, a specific period. Uh, there are very few but the medieval era in general, which largely reflects lack of sources on uh, late ancient and early medieval uh, battles, except for uh, some of the more popular Western European uh, battles. But you will have occasionally war games where the Byzantines pop up. But you're right that it's largely limited to uh, large-scale granite strategy games. And then you have Assassin's Creed, which is an episodic game. There are, it jumps around through history uh, from ancient Greece to the Renaissance to the founding of America. There's a pirate version, there's a Byzantine chapter. Uh, they like to find interesting points in history where they can have this Templar conspiracy work its way into uh, Dan Brown level history adventure. And it's it, kind of exciting. It's a Templar uh, conspiracy? It, it The first Assassin's Creed, the Assassins are fighting the Templars who are kind of the evil people, but then you find out in, ancient games that they're an offshoot of a pre-Adamic civilization. It's all very, very confusing. And it's all mm -hmm. kind of fun and wonky in that kind of science fiction history, uh, history channel uh, type of game uh, and movie right. that you really find very intriguing. And, but they have a lot of very good history in here as well. You know, the, the, the Pope isn't always, the Pope isn't really a murderous conspiratorial robot like he is in Assassin's Creed. But there is truth about um, the way they do streets, the way they do art, the way they do uh, sure. costumes. Um, a lot of this stuff is very well researched and I can especially recommend their ancient Egypt themed one, which was painstakingly done uh, about Alexandria and the Ptolemaic era. Uh, so Assassin's Creed, I think has probably done probably some of the best work on the ancient world. If people don't have time for strategy games, but just want to jump around and play a story uh, about history, whether it's a Byzantine era or otherwise, it's certainly the place to go. Right. In fact, now that you mentioned it, I think I've seen some videos um, from the Alexandria uh, version and and I was directed to them because apparently they got a bunch of Greek people to be, you know, uh, yep. performing the dialogue, the background noises. And there are a bunch of people speaking Greek in a modern Greek pronunciation. I'm sure I could understand it. I was struck by that. Like that's, that's an extra step. So it is, it is, it is, it's quite, it takes quite a bit of effort to localize in any language whatsoever. Um, and increasingly companies are trying to do this, uh, both for history, historical reasons that adds flavor, it adds immersion. Um, it is something that we try to do in our games whenever we can. We don't have a lot of voices in our games, 
but we try to find ways to to, uh, to touch history, um, to use an old, yeah. an old, an old, an old wargaming term. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier that um, like late antique or early medieval is avoided because of lack of sources, which is an interesting scruple. And and maybe we can get to that later on. But I just wanted to ask now, um, as an introdu- more introductory question. So, mm-hmm. where does Byzantium appear in these games generally? What what are the main? What are the highlights? I mean. Byzantium is a lot, a lot of how nations and cultures appear in games is often determined by what is the purpose of the game? What is the game about? Um, as I said, like a real-time strategy game where you're about building small armies and fighting, generally you want to have the different nations be similar enough to each other that it's not too hard to jump from one faction to the next. I just played Byzantium. Now I'm going to play the Franks. You don't want to make the Franks so different from the Byzantines that you need to learn the game all over again. But you do want to make them feel distinct. So you will add special units. You will add special bonuses. You will add special barks, little audio cues. We call them barks uh, in the industry. Um, And which will be in their language. This is something that uh, Age of Kings, Age of Empires II did and introduced way back when it came out. Um, so that, but there the nation is kind of a costume. It is not really about the Byzantines. It's not really about the Franks. It's not about the Saracens. It is, it is like cosplay. You're putting on a little bit of a costume. Oh, I, I have cataphracts. Isn't that a very right. nice Byzantine thing to have? You look at the grand strategy games, uh, like Civilization or Europa Universalis and Crusader Kings, you have a little bit more room there. But again, it depends on what the intention of the game is. Uh, civilization is what we call in the industry a 4X game, a game that is about exploration, expansion, exploitation, and extermination. Um, Yikes. Where you start with you start with one small city, and then you build out. So it's not it's not based on history. You are playing a historical character, and everyone starts at the same point. Everyone starts with one city, with their cultural advantages or disadvantages, and build out from there. The games that we make at Paradox are based on historical maps. So when you play Crusader Kings as the Byzantines, you play as the Byzantine Empire in. Crusader Kings 3, your starting points are either 867 or 1066. And you start playing the Byzantine Empire or a duke or a count. We'll get into that in a bit, why that's not what the Byzantines had, but why we do it like like that. Um, You can play, but you're playing those cultures in their place. You have an orthodox faith. Mm. Orthodoxy in Crusader Kings has orthodox tenets which are similar to or different from Catholic tenets. And that affects relationships with Catholic or Muslim or Coptic nations. Orthodoxy in civilization is just a title you give a religion you invent based on things you discover. So what the nation represents is sometimes, sometimes it's just a label. Sometimes it is a little bit more. There's some attempt at cultural, uh, meaning and civilization I think lately has gotten better at that and more interested in that. And then we have the more 
his serious historical games, like the ones that we make, that are interested in really getting people involved in the the geographic history of the time, though, again, within very specific limits, because the the Byzantine Empire in Crusader Kings 2 or 3 is run like a Norman feudal state. And the Norman feudal states weren't even run like Norman feudal states. But we do this for gameplay reasons again, so you don't have to relearn a whole lot of stuff when you're jumping around the map. Um, So there, but so what Byzantine looks like and what the Byzantine place is, is a lot turned by the the, the purpose of the game and the the starting point uh, of the history you're doing it in. Um, Europa Universalis, our other game, for example, its starting point is 1444. So the Byzantine Empire is Constantinople, uh, some Greek vassals, and a lot of praying because there's a huge Ottoman Empire, huge Ottoman army just outside uh, the gates of Constantinople, ready to take you. And Mehmet II, with his gigantic uh, military power, is ready to do the the, the dirty on you. Um, But again, this allows all of these other challenges in in that um and we but, but it is possible to survive as byzantium and then we want to create okay if the byzantines survive what does what does a byzantium look like in 1600 what does a byzantium look like in 1700 right. so the, the challenge as a game designer is to say okay the byzantines were not wiped out what cultural touch points can we have for the byzantines through what we call national ideas to capture what byzantium was about and this is something we try to do uh, for all of the cultures in our games. And it's really challenging for cultures that didn't exist, like 17th century Byzantium or um, 15th century uh, United States or a giant Aztec uh, confederacy that stretches from Mississippi Valley to uh, Peru. All of these things are possible in our games. The challenge is to make them feel uh, authentic in a kind of way and it's yeah. it, it's and byzantium is very popular with our player base so we try to make it interesting that is interesting i mean have you read like harry turtle dove's novels and <laughs> alternative history and they're very popular with a lot of our content designers uh when we're researching our games uh there's a lot of interest in because the map the, the game is historical until you press play once a human intervenes everything changes. Um, You can be in England that's focused on continental power and not colonialism, for example. So you want to look at that since you still have territories in France in 1444. Why not just be France? Um, So there's a lot of interest in alternative histories and that has really increasingly become a part of our um, raison d'etre as a studio. A good example is our World War II game, Hearts of Iron Four, where We've decided since people like the Byzantines, why not give the Greeks a chance to restore the Byzantine Empire if they can follow through all of these ridiculous accomplishments in uh, the 1930s? If Italy, if Mussolini can form his new Rome, and the ah. Turks, and the, and and the, the, the Turks can reestablish uh, the Ottoman Empire, which has only been dead for about 20 years, after all. Uh, why not give the Greeks a chance to run the table and reestablish some sort of Greek empire in the Eastern Mediterranean? Oh, they uh, so, had the chance. Yeah, so why, so why not? So these are these kinds of fun things uh, you can do with alternative history. And again, it's because Byzantium is 
quite popular with a certain people who people who like Byzantium like Byzantium a lot, and they're kind of loud and vocal about where's the Byzantine content, um, where's this, where's the purple, where's the stuff for us. So we kind of give them uh, little things they can play with uh, that are kind of challenging uh, and very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Can I follow up with that? Uh, yeah. You mentioned a couple of features here that are sort of associated with Byzantium. So in different games, it might be a unit like the cataphracts mm -hmm. or the civilizational bonuses in a game like Civilization. Um, what's the brand of Byzantium? When people are looking for yeah. a Byzantine experience, what is it that they are looking for? And I think you might even go further with that, not just how as a designer or as a, as a sort of game format, do you make something look and feel Byzantine, but also what are players looking for? Are there specific challenges or specific counterfactual historical outcomes that they associate with playing a Byzantine in one of your games or a game more generally? One of the great challenges in designing a faction, doing any fiction, it applies to movies as well, but designing history in games is you want to be historically interesting, historically authentic, but you're also running into the liberty valence problem. When the history become, when legend becomes history, you print, you print the legend. Uh, there are certain expectations that people have of Byzantium. Um, it has to be kind of really religious. People associate the Byzantine empire with a strong religious uh, feeling of some kind. People might not understand the patriarchate, might not understand Caesaropapism, but they do understand the Byzantium has something to do with a very strong faith. Uh, so you see this with um, in our Crusader Kings games, giving like lots of patriarchal powers, and in Europa Universalis, you adopt icons to give your nation certain powers. Mm. Uh, certain icons will give you bonuses. It's weird, but that's how we do it. In uh, Civilization VI, they just introduced Byzantium a couple of months ago with Basil II as their leader. Um, you get, if you win a battle in enemy territory, your religion spreads further into their territory. Uh, so religion is an important part of what it means to Byzantine. The color purple uh, is almost universal. I mean, just like you know, in the old uh, British imperial maps, the Britons were red. Uh, Rome can either be red or it can be purple, but Byzantium is always purple. Purple or a deep, deep red. Um, so the, the color uh, is there. The, 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 the Cairo uh, emblem is, you, you'll see that in a lot of places. Um, and yeah, but a lot of, and it comes down to units. It's always one of two units. It is the cataphract or it is the, the dromon. And that is, if you're going to give the Byzantium, Byzantine special units, there's going to be a strong cavalry unit and a strong naval unit. Um, Civilization V, for example, uh, a lot of cultures had one unique unit and one unique building. Byzantium didn't get any unique buildings, but they got a boat and a big horse. Um, and that's what they've done. Uh, Civilization VI, the, the, the Hippodrome came back. Hipp Hippodrome is like the only building anybody knows uh, because, you know, the blues and the greens and the chariot racing, that's what it is. The Hagia Sophia, you can't build Hagia Sophia in every city, but you can build a Hippodrome in every city, and that will add uh, happiness. Or in Civilization VI, it'll give you a free horse unit. Um, there are all of these. Uh, right. So the Byzantine brand is 
is largely and generally speaking, uh, naval, cataphractic, and religious. Huh. Uh, though there are, I mean, I, there are other things about Byzantium that are, I know that in, um, if you go back through the history of games, not about Byz- Byzantium in general, Constantinople as a city has this association with just fantastic wealth. So you look at trading games like Rise of Venice, where Constantinople is a huge port where you can, if you can get there, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere uh, sort of thing. Uh, going even further back, Microprose's uh, Machiavelli, which is a Renaissance uh, trading game, Constantinople is where you, where you found relics. You'd go to Constantinople, you'd get the relics and you'd bring them back to the Catholic cities and sell them for so much money. Uh, so if you could establish a monopoly in Constantinople by stabbing all of your right. fellow uh, merchant princes, then you could make a mint there. Uh, so that's so Constantinople on its own is this city of you know, great power and great wealth, even though for a lot of the later centuries of the Byzantine Empire, it was not. It was a largely, it was a, mo- it was a depopulated city. Uh, for a lot of the end of uh, the empire, sure. but it still has this this heft. Constantinople means something. It is a city of it's a city of legend. It's a city of glory, and that will always be the case, I think. And no no one wants to fight over small Constantinople. It, it, it has to be the prize. It has to be a prize worth taking. It's the city of the world's desire. Yeah, yeah. And, and is Byzantium in these games? sort of sharply differentiated from ancient Rome or does ancient, does the ancient Roman empire appear in these games or in your games, or are they just medieval themed? Um, it, it depends on the game. Our games have a very strong division. We have an ancient themed game, but it runs up to Augustus. The clock stops at Augustus. Oh. Um, so you don't have those interacting. Now you look at uh, the total war games, uh, creative assemblies, total war games. They have, uh, they had Attila and, before that, you know, the Roman game, they had a uh, total war, uh, barbarian invasion, which has an Eastern Rome and a Western Rome. And they're, they're and they, and they are frenemies. Um, it's still, Western Rome is still a, a going concern then. So whether we can speak of, I'm not sure how your podcast does it, if the Byzantine Empire is always a Byzantine Empire, if it's always Eastern Roman Empire, or it's only become Byzantine after Western Rome falls. Who knows? History just makes up these lines as they go along. Um, but there is certainly in the Total War games, one of the only games I can think of uh, that have an Eastern Rome and a Western Rome competing for the same space, um, facing the same problems. These are both games about both Barbarian Invasion and Attila uh, from Total War Rome, Total War One, and Rome, Total War Two. They're both about the barbarian pressures on the empires. They're both about managing decline. Uh, the Western empire is kind of doomed, but has ways of kind of fighting back. Eastern empire has a chance to retrench and restructure itself, just as it did historically. It is, it is richer. Uh, it has a, it, it, it can play the waiting game longer because of its wealth. It can pay off its enemies. It has, you know, more cities to deal with. It has fewer immediate pressures if you can keep the Persians quiet. Um, so th- these do exist in the total war space and trade of assembly has, I think may, I think uh, their Attila game is probably the 
best of uh, their game. I think I, th- I think and I think they're 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 reasoning about with three kingdoms. The, the Chinese three Genkin period is their best game, best historical game. But before that, I would think uh, Total War Attila is probably their best game uh, about the historical period. Uh, be- the historical periods compared to like they have, they have fantasy games as well, um, because it is about so it is about movement. It is about culture. It is about the price of expansion. Do I? Is it worth it to take this city, or does it make more sense to burn it down? Am I stronger by just depriving my enemy of mm. this? Does it make any sense to hold it? Something you couldn't do in previous. Something that a lot of games don't let you do. Don't, don't allow you to do. Generally, if you take a territory, you've got to eat it, and you've got to find a way to hang on to it. Attila let you. Do what you know. Both the barbarians and the Persians and the Eastern Romans would sometimes do: just scorch earth and area, and create this wasteland that would be a, be, be a buffer, so no one could just walk through it and have a state next door. Um, so I think if people are looking for early, really early Eastern Roman Empire games, the Total War games are the place to be. Uh, They are also games that are heavily militaristic. All of these games are really more about war than about society. Um, And that we can talk about why we love war so much and hate society. That's the industry for you. Um, So if you like playing battles and, you know, building up big walls and, that sort of thing. These are the types of games for people to play about the early Eastern Roman Empire. But generally, yeah, there's a, a, there's a distinction. Except in you know, civilization, yes, the Romans and Byzantines can play in the same map, but it's a random map and the Zulus are going to be there too. And so are the Americans right. and so are the Japanese because that is how civilization works. You are just a, so a culture plopped down on a random map and you don't know if your neighbor is going to be Hammurabi or if it's going to be Theodore Roosevelt or who. So you've already addressed this a little bit, but I'm wondering what are the time periods that tend to be focused on? So you've mentioned the sort of fall of the Western Roman Empire in the fifth century. That seems to be a recurring feature. That makes a certain amount of sense. Uh, for Crusader Kings 3, I think you mentioned 867 and 1066. Yep. I know why 1066 is in there, and it's probably not much to do with Byzantium, but how do you decide which time periods to focus on, and what are the time periods that tend to actually have Byzantine presence in them? It's a good question um, as to when you want I mean, we chose 867 in Crusader Kings 3 because that's when you have the great heathen army invading England. Uh, so it's about the Vikings. All of these dates, 1066 and 867, they're largely about Western Europe. They're about dates that are familiar to Western Europe. I was doing some research earlier thinking about trying to figure out what's the first earliest game I can remember that has a historical Byzantium. And it is a really old uh, SSI game from 1991 called Medieval Lords, Soldier Kings of Europe. It's kind of a risk type thing with a little more, it's an educational game, but a little bit more risk-like in that there aren't a lot of differences between the different countries, but you do have to keep your nobles happy, you have to fight heresy and plague. And it has six start dates. None of them are 1066, but they are almost all connected to uh, important dates in the Hundred Years' War, even though you can play 
I mean, the dates are 1028, 1092, 1173, 1230, 1360, and 1430, most of which have very little relevance to the Eastern right. uh, map. One of the dates is tied, I think, to the collapse of the Seljuk Empire, uh, but most of the rest are tied to, okay, this is when this thing happened in the Hundred Years' War, even though you can play just as the Eastern part of the map if you want. Um, so, but these are all about the high middle ages. These are about, these aren't about the dark ages. Um, and most games try to avoid too much dealing with the dark ages um, because people like to see knights. People like to see uh, people riding around in mail and with lances and they don't want to see a bunch of, they want to see crossbows. They want to see two trebuchets. Uh, so you're not going to have a bunch of dirty guys running around with, you know, strumpets and lakes throwing swords at them. That's not the type of thing people expect to see uh, in their games about history. It's just the the, the, the dirtiness of history. Um, it's the same with Hollywood. You know, I mean, you talk about, oh, how authentic uh, things like Vikings or Game of Thrones are because they're so dirty. It's like, you know... That's not what people want to play, though. People don't want to play the really dirty, grimy stuff most of the time. They want to have a Rome. They want, they want a Rome that is made of marble. Yes. And they want knights in shining armor. So generally, if you're going to play a game of Byzantium, it's going to be sometime. It. I mean, uh, I think that if you look at civilization again. It's a great example. Uh, they choose leaders, historic leaders, and their leaders have generally been Theodora and Justinian. You know, very early classic, you know, early Byzantine rulers. And Civilization VI, they chose Basil II. Once again, 11th century uh, height of the Byzantine Empire. Um, you're not going to have a games about the Byzantines generally after, you know, the sack of Constantinople in, the, in the 1204, 1205. Yes. Oh. Uh, so, but again, Generally speaking, uh, you want to, what what do you want the player's experience to be? Um, Yuval Rosales, the Byzantine player, knows what he's up against. He's going to be killed because the Turks are there. But in Crusader Kings, eight sixty seven or ten sixty six, the Byzantines are the big dogs. They have they have a good chance of just wiping out yeah. a lot of Eastern Europe. They can just march in and spread orthodoxy up to all the thieves, all, all the heathen countries, uh, not wait for, you know, Kiev to convert. They can go, they can do it at the sword if they can keep, if they can keep their stuff together. And that's always the challenge in a game like Crusader Kings. Um, so, but because the start dates are very rarely chosen with Byzantium in mind, because they're usually chosen because the audience is largely a Western audience chosen with English landmarks in mind, or because of a Swedish company, Swedish landmarks in mind, or uh, maybe uh, uh, I mean, the first Roman Rosales game started in 1492. They didn't do that because of the fall of Granada. They did that because, oh, Christopher Columbus gets to start. Right. Uh, so the, the dates you choose will determine the Byzantium you're facing. Um, yeah, well, you know, what Go you ahead. can say about Byzantium is that it can accommodate most dates. 
Yes, it is. It is an amazingly flexible, very challenging, fascinating history. And I think that it's, I mean, I, I mean, you know, as well as I do that Edward Gibbons, you know, weakness and misery line is kind of doomed uh, Byzantium to second class in all popular culture uh, and certainly in games. Yeah, well, this brings us to the question of Orientalism I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. because it's a concern in scholarship and how we write history and how we represent cultures. Yeah. And I was looking at some of the uh, uh, you know, videos on YouTube about some of these games, and I don't know what they are, I guess promotional or, or, or you know, previews yeah. or something like that. Um, and especially looking at the, the Attila game, I, I think this is one of the, you called it Total War, is this one yeah. of those? Um, so I noticed that there were lots of palm trees in Constantinople, and there were people calling each other my friend in the way that, you know, Orientals do in Hollywood movies. And... And then things like that. And I was just kind of wondering if there's a, a sort of sensitivity or awareness in the industry to these kinds of questions. I know Byzantium would not be at the first rank, front rank of concern, but generally how does it play out in designing cultures? It's getting better. It's kind of what I can say. Okay. Um, I mean, it's because people are paying more attention to things like language, paying more attention to not having like corny accents, um, trying to get away from the Hollywood idea that everyone born before 1750 spoke with an upper class English accent. You know, you want to try to avoid these sorts of things. Mm. Um, it's certainly an issue. I know that, in, for example, in Crusader Kings 2, we had a Byzantine themed expansion pack uh, called Legacy of Rome, which added a lot of new special things for the Byzantium. Um, but one of the features was special tortures that the Byzantines could do. Uh, like. Uh, blindness and castration, which weren't available to a lot of other cultures. And it's not like the Byzantine Empire was uniquely cruel, uh, but it does pay and in, play into this concept of the Byzantine Empire as a place where horrible intrigues and tortures and punishments happened. Some of which might be historical, but a lot of which comes out of the very old trope of, of Eastern despotism. Sure. Um, yeah. which ties into uh, everything from, you know, Mithridates up through the Saracens, uh, up to the Mongols, and certainly the Byzantines. Uh, so that's something that you, you want to be more conscious of. You want to, don't, want, don't want to have portray people as uniquely uh, prone to, to blindness. I mean, yeah, yeah. To blindness. But so, but these sorts of, and you, I mean, you talk about the, the art and the language. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot of this stuff is is done for technical reasons. Uh, you don't want to have too many terrain varieties, which is why Polly said, oh, right. "This is the Mediterranean. Mm. This, is, this is the Mediterranean landscape. Plop it there. That means you get palm trees. I mean, that's just what the Mediterranean landscape looks like. Sorry, so sorry, Thrace. You know, that's what you end up with. <laughs> um, and if you decide that 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 uh, Europe stops at the Peloponnese and the Mediterranean starts at Constantinople, you will sometimes add up with really, really weird uh, geographic stuff. That's largely for, and once again, is that Orientalism? Well, of course it is, because you're defining the East as starting in the Byzantine Empire. That's where the East starts, because they have nothing to do with us, because uh, they're not real Christians. They're not like they're not like us. Uh, so there's certainly an Orientalist and pro-Catholic, uh, not intentional, certainly not conscious, but it's part of the legacy 
of uh, the Byzantine memory and why the Roman memory is stronger and more varied and why you, yeah, you might see palm trees in Constantinople, but you won't see them in, in Syracuse, in Sicily. Because right. that's Europe. So jumping off from that, the idea that the people who are creating these games are to some extent influenced by um, the popular memory and popular historical memory going back to Gibbon. And I'm, I'm wondering what kind of research goes into this. If you, so Byzantium is not going to be the driving force in the game. Yep. You're choosing a start date based on the battle of Agincourt or the fall of the Western Roman empire. What then do you, I mean, you probably don't have inside knowledge here for all these different studios, but in general, what do you imagine the research process is? What do you go to try to find out about Byzantium to make Byzantium work in these games? Well, yeah, what's it? It's like what, what parts of the game you're going to have, you know, like civilization, all you really need is stuff that feels Byzantine. For us, uh, Paradox, uh, we take research quite seriously and we're getting a lot, a lot of it is done at the, at the community level. We will have um, beta testers invited in to the, before the game is released, people who know a region really well, and they all say, hey, I want to do content connected to a certain region. I want to do research on African religions because I have a degree in African religion. So they will do research and they'll come back with something. And very often the designers will say, this is too much. We need to gamify this. This is to fit within our existing game systems. Um, a lot of stuff is introduced into a game because you have systems and you want to emphasize that part of your system. Uh, for example, I mentioned that uh, in Civilization and a lot of other games, the Byzantines are religious. This works if you have a religious system in your game. If, you don't have, if your game doesn't have religion in it, then you can just do away with that. You, they, they can just be the purple guys on the map. But civilization has a religious mechanic. Okay, we'll just go heavy on that. We will lean hard on the religious thing, and that will be the Byzantine special power. And that will be enough to evoke Byzantium. Um, as I said, uh, in our games right now, Crusader Kings 3, everybody has a, a nor an ideal, theoretical, never really happened, Norman feudal system, no matter where they are on the map. Why we do this? Because it's historic, it's historish enough, but also makes for really good gameplay to have squabbling nobles and different intersections of power and have marriages matter. And was the Byzantine Empire set up like this? No. Were the caliphates set up like this? Absolutely not. Um, but it is a concession we make to the game as opposed to history. So what do we add? We add, um, there's a lot of room in art. There's a lot of room in deciding different cultural emphases. Um, there's room in how you emphasize uh, religion or priorities. There are in Europa Universalis, if Byzantium, as I said, can you know survive, uh, they get special missions. And the missions are things like, okay, we've got to get back to the empire. So you give it all of these stages to go through. Okay, if you get back the islands of the Aegean, you get a reward. If you get back Albania, you get a reward. And there's all of these ways to say, how would a Byzantine emperor have done this? So you give them all of these stages to go through with little cookies to encourage the player 
to play out in a quasi-historical alternate history type thing. Now, these missions are ahistorical. They, of course, never happened, but they want to be tied to historical things. Um, we're doing another expansion coming up uh, quite soon, this uh, later this year. And one of the things we're doing, spent a lot of research on, is fixing the First Nations, the North American First Nations, uh, trying to give them proper missions. Um, and one thing we've done, for example, is you know the Iroquois weren't a united federation in 1444, but we want to get them to a united federation. Okay, how do we do that? So we set all of these steps to get them there. And that required some research, historical research into what's this process, and but also how does this tie into already things that are already in the game? Because you can't just rewrite or reboot. History is important, and it is something we try to spend a lot of time on. But since the game has, the game in any game, that's about history that isn't just about Byzantium or just about Rome has to cover so many different situations. You can have edge cases here and there, but even in our game about the uh, rise of Rome, the Roman Senate and the Carthaginian Senate run pretty much the same. Uh, they're both senates. They both have yeah. co-rulers. They both have the same types of political parties. Uh, though we know very little about the Carthaginian Senate, we know it ran very likely did not run like the Roman one, but we have a Senate mechanic, so it's going to be like that. So sometimes you want you want to have as much history as, as much history as you can fit without breaking everything else. And it's hard and it's a challenge, and you want to do justice to everything. Um, and sometimes we find space to do that in the margins, and sometimes we find space to introduce whole new systems. But that takes quite a bit of time. Do you contact experts or just you know go pick up some books? A lot of our beta testers are students. We have a lot of, uh, I know that a lot of our uh, content designers have history degrees uh, at right. some level or another. I, I, I think I'm the only PhD in the company, but it's not in history. Uh, though I certainly have probably the best library of anybody in the company. Um, there are, we, we do consult uh, authorities in like a number of spaces, especially if it's an area we don't know a lot about. It depends on the region. Now, for ancient medieval European history, the company has a huge resource. There was tens of thousands of people on the forums, uh, many of whom are uh, subject experts in their field. Either they are historians or they are uh, knowledgeable amateurs like myself. Um, and they're people who can contribute here and there. And a lot of stuff is cross-checked. Certainly a lot of, there's a lot of book, there's a lot of book learning. There's a lot of going back to, oh, going yeah. to the university libraries. There's a lot of uh, going through uh, the Osprey books uh, right. for art and this sort of thing. So there's, there's certainly a great deal of research that goes into it. How much of it actually ends up in the game is always a question you got to face uh, because you can't put everything you want to uh, for budgetary reasons and for just for practical game reasons. I mean, I'd love to have a game that's just about Byzantium because there are tons of games that are just about Rome or just about uh, medieval England or you know, just about, I mean, there are, there are tons of games about being a Hanseatic League trader because Germans are weird no. like that. 
because uh, Ger Germans will play a simulation of anything and they just love their Hanseatic uh, trade sims. Oh. Uh, but a game that is about uh, Byzantine court politics or oh, yeah. uh, would be, or Byzantine religious uh, squabbles would be interesting. Um, but there just isn't, uh, no one's made it yet. I'm not sure people won't make it because uh, there's the growth of the independent game market and the history space has just been like ridiculous in the last uh, two or three years. Uh, people who have some historical knowledge who want to touch on a specific thing they're not getting from their games. So you get things like Life of a Legionnaire in the Second Punic War. You can play a game where you are a legionnaire in the Punic War and you have to upgrade your skills and fight battles. There are uh, gladiator managing uh, games. There are galley war games. And eventually I think somebody's going to uh, hopefully do something on the Byzantines or, I mean, I would like something on the Moorish, on Moorish Spain, but that's me. But the Byzantines are also good. Yeah, you have the Cyril versus Nestorius game <laughs> where you get bribes, you know. Yeah, I think I, I think that sort of thing would be great. I and mean, there are so many little political sims out there um, that would fit really well, I think, with the Byzantine skin. Yeah. So I think this might be a good time to transition to talking about mechanics. This has come up a couple of times, and I think that for me, this is perhaps the most interesting set of questions, and that is how mechanics contribute to historical understanding, mm -hmm. or perhaps in the other direction, how historical understandings are encoded into mechanics. So you talked about, for instance, Crusader Kings, where you've taken an idealized Norman feudal system and said, this is really what the game is mechanically. You are managing to a large extent these sorts of dynamics that we've drawn inspiration from, from history, but then you sort of impose that to a certain extent on everyone, because once you have those core mechanics, you can't really make an entirely different game for every single faction or every single uh, subgroup. So um, I, to come to the question here, I'm wondering how you read mechanics. Uh, so if you are say someone like uh, an academic who doesn't play a lot of video games, if you sit down to a video game, what are the tools for understanding how that video game is kind of communicating priorities or telling you how to understand the civilization that you're piloting or the, the context in which you're operating, if that question makes sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, of course, always a challenge. And I think that designers have to be, you know, better and smarter about how they do it. I'm gonna use civilization as uh, the core example here. It is a game made by a baby boomer who learned Whig progress history in the 1950s. So it has a progressive progress understanding of how things work. You invent this thing, then you invent mm. the next thing, then you invent the next thing, right. and you become civilized and stronger. And that's what civilization is. It is, it is Whig boomer progress history. And that <laughs> hasn't, which is fine, but it, it, it's wrong. And I think Meyer would, would say, if he was to make the game today, it wouldn't look, it wouldn't be a straight line but the game's made and you can't make civilization seven too different from other civilizations. Otherwise you're losing what the game is. Um, Europa Universalis is a game that is about colonization and exploration, but it is about the state. It is about the creation of states, the creation of nations that create empires. Crusader Kings is about individuals, individual politics and the handing down of titles through dynasties and families. Uh, our game Victoria is about societies. 
It is about pressure groups, political and ethnic pressure groups and revolu internal revolutions and reforms. It is about societal stuff. Now, we haven't made a Victoria game in a very long time because they're very, very hard to do and to do right. Um, so a lot depends, but so these games are generally approached from the beginning of what is this game about? This game is about, it's about the formation of empires. So we're gonna take a state level look at things and the mechanics are all going to be very state level. It's going to be war. It's going to be diplomacy. It's not going to be about the whims of a ruler. You might have a good ruler or a bad ruler, but it's not really going to be about their whims. Crusader kings, very much about their whims, very much about this is a ruler who has a, who's a sinner. This is a ruler who's a saint. This guy's got a lot of military skill. You're going to declare war. You might want to use this king now before his poet son becomes king. You want to use you know the warrior before the poet takes over, and then rebuild things once uh, the the, the peace-loving kid takes over. Uh, so if the system will often, this will very often translate to how we understand, and for our audience, how they understand history, and it's something we have to be cautious of. We don't want people to think that because Europa Universalis is about states that individuals stopped mattering, or that because Crusader Kings is about individuals, that there weren't systemic pressures uh, right. or systemic causes and effects for things, because there obviously, and of course, are. And there are there to some extent. You have the church, and you have cultures, and you have other expectations, but it's very much a game about individuals. Um, so there's uh, there are a lot of challenges in how you have, you want to have mechanics that are fun and interesting and compelling, you want to have mechanics that are new and interesting. Uh, before the first Crusader Kings, no one made a game about individuals at the strategic level. And that was kind of new and interesting. And that's fun. And that's great. Um, and so you want to have these things. But you also, you don't want to tell too many lies. And you don't want to tell harmful lies. But you also don't want to put the player in the position of committing war crimes. <laughs> right. Uh, so there's there are all of these challenges in having mechanics that are historically appropriate, that are historically interesting, that are interesting on their own, um, that don't necessarily that don't lie to the player too much, um, but also you want to make sure that they have a reason to continue and that you're not co corrupting them in some way, except for keeping them up too late at night. We're, we're willing to corrupt them that much but you don't want to corrupt their understanding of history too much. Now, games have a role to play here, and I think games critics have done a very, very good job in pointing out uh, the historical problems. And uh, there's a new game about, um, new Call of Duty game about uh, Reagan era, Cold War. So critics have said, well, what is this trying to say about the Cold War? What is the lesson as a Cold Warrior here? How are they, try how are they using Reagan? How are they using this language? Uh, about the latest Assassin's Creed Viking game, how it approaches Norse culture in general. And critics have done uh, the same with grand strategy games like ours uh, since time immemorial. And that's all good. And that's all very welcome. Um, and it's something I look forward to reading and I pass on to our designers as much as I can. That sort of historical criticism and games criticism and media criticism that comes from a historical space saying this mechanic is ahistorical and harmful or ahistorical and it doesn't matter that much. Um, there are some things we can't fix, some things we can't change. We are still doing a business and, you know, 
I mean, Russell Crowe's Gladiator got a Best Picture, and I don't understand that at all. <laughs> uh, so you know, there's uh, and Master of, and, and Commander didn't. I mean, that that's the real crime. Uh, so we have all of these these sorts of media criticism of history and mechanics. Uh, it's very welcome, and I wish I, there was an easy answer as to what the line is and what do we decide to include. Yeah. Uh, a lot depends on: is it a new game? Is it a game in a franchise? Is it a broad? Is it a broadly focused game? If there was an Assassin's Creed game, for example, just about Byzantium, I would want it to be really, really good on its Byzantium. If Byzantium is just one thing among many, then I can probably be a little bit looser. It's okay if the costumes don't quite fit, as long as it doesn't feel like it's, yeah. uh, you know, robbing the grave for no reason. So a lot depends on the focus and the interest and the desire. Um, and it, 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 it's challenging. Accuracy and mechanics and the place where, where history meets, where historiography and history gaming meet truth, meet entertainment is a fascinating space. And it's something we talk about a lot on our podcast, uh, which is about strategy games, three moves ahead. Um, it's something that comes up a lot. Um, because we all read a lot of history and watch a lot of movies and play a lot of games. And it, as a, as a marketing person, as someone who talks a lot with the designers, drawing these lines where the mechanics should go is challenging and interesting and watching it happen live in a Slack channel, seeing people have these discussions is very interesting. So, I mean, I understand that for obvious reasons, the mechanics of the game are structured around conflict. Um, and I was kind of struck by this a, while, a few years ago. My stepson was explaining the mechanics of something, a game like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how you're incentivized and rewarded by physical conflict and, and killing things <laughs> and not by achieving other kinds of goals through other means, uh, negotiation, bribery, whatever. You can often get far ahead, you know, farther ahead that way. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of wondering if in these games, and I speak from a position of complete yeah. ignorance about how these things work, but if say you're negotiating a conflict and as a Byzantine emperor, you get the Kumans to attack the Pechenegs problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, you don't have to do anything. Is that, is that a scenario that the games allow? And even on a broader scale, like think of something like the European Union. Like we're all going to decide to stop our tradition of killing each other every few decades and just get really, really rich together. And, you, you know, we kind of win, but I guess from a gaming standpoint, the European history post-war is a big yawn fest, right? Yeah, that's kind of the reason, you know, you want to have, you, if you create a game that has armies, players are going to want to use those armies. So there aren't a lot of games about the post-World War II, but the Cold War period that aren't about, you know, nuclear showdowns or that don't right. devolve into the United States annexing Mexico and British Columbia. So that's, but if you make an historical game, uh, for example, you want to Rosales, mercantilism is great. It makes you a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It's better than free trade because that's what they believe. You want to encourage players to play in a somewhat historical way. And that means, you know, mercantilism has to be given a bit of a boost. Um, 
Now, there are other incentives to free trade. There are sometimes it might not want to be really mercantilist because it tends to bug a lot of people. But if you want to, if you want to make money, mercantilism is the way to do it. Uh, so you want to, and that means that war and empire building is the way things happen. But you do want to have other options for players. And this is true in civilization and it's true in all, all of our games as well. You want to have the option to have money to buy people off. You want to have options for strong alliances that deter uh, attacks. In Crusader Kings, our medieval game, um, you want to have royal marriages that create alliances or that create the chance of inheriting a throne two or three generations down the line that build these territorial claims one way or another. So you want to have different ways of playing the game because you play people play these games in different ways. Some people don't want to build world-spanning empires. They just want to build the historical France and stop. Or they just want to unite, this want to get the Byzantine Empire back where it was. They want to reconquer Greece and half of Anatolia and stop. Um, and they want to play it out. Uh, in our Roman game, they don't want to become emperor. They want the Republic to live. They want to have the Republic last and not, you know, fall into civil war. So giving players options to explore their own desires from history is certainly important. Now, in all of these eras we study, war was the ultima ratio regum and it was just the way things were done. Um, it was all blood and the sword and that's that what the politics was. Um, so war will generally come to you whether you like it or not. Um, so you have to be ready for it. Uh, the total war games, creative assemblies games, are really centered around the conflict because the big attraction there is not the map. The big attraction there are the 3D battles between the well-drawn armies. It is about watching your soldiers march in a line and the cavalry charge and the archers send their ahistorical fire arrows uh, into uh, all of the enemies. And that's because that's what the game is selling. It's selling this beautiful cinematic uh, thing. That's what they have been selling. Um, the most recent game, Three Kingdoms, which is about the, the, the collapse of the Han Empire, has a lot more politics, a lot more uh, alliances, just like the romance of the Three Kingdoms. It is about dragging off somebody's ally so they become your ally and turning tables and watching maps switch based on family and friendship bonds and all of this. And that's why I think it's just an amazing triumph of, of a game. But it's still largely about marching your army and sure, having South South set things up and creating the uh, double envelopment. Um, conflict and war is really the big thing in historical strategies. Um, unless it is a game that is, a, that is designed about building a city and city builders are a very, very popular form of entertainment, very popular form of strategy game. And there are, have been many that are history-based, largely Roman and Egyptian, but there have been others. Uh, trade games about <clears throat> the Mediterranean or about uh, the Hanseatic League or about um, building trade routes and railroads. I mean, railroad tycoon type games. There are strategy games that aren't about war. But if you give players armies, they will want to use the armies. And if you're going to have a large historical spanning game, you need to have armies in there somewhere. Sure. They're an important source of power. They're an important drain on the economy. Um, and they they got they got to be used somehow. And 
I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is an interesting comparison. You know, the, 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 the murder hobo is kind of the term they use for that. It's just a wandering vagrant who just murders people, the murder hobo. And what does he do? The Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. It's a term for the, the players. They're, they're, they're murder hobos. <laughs> they're, they're, they're vagrants who go around and kill for money. And that's what they do. Pretty much. Now, yeah. This is changing a lot, however, in the D&D space, the tabletop space, because of, as we mentioned earlier, with the industry has moved to uh, Twitch and video streaming. Now we have people live streaming their Dungeons and Dragons games there so you can see people play. And a lot of them are kind of, there are a lot more play acting. There's a lot more negotiation. There are still battles. There are still fights, usually against non-sentient monsters. But in sentient creatures, there's a lot more negotiation, a lot more acting, a lot more performance. So this is in some ways changing the culture of a game which had been for the longest time about how many hit points do you have? How big is my sword? Um, And I I think it's not a coincidence that Crusader Kings is our most popular and best-selling game because it is a game about individuals. It's about role-playing. You play a family. So you can tell stories about, I mean, my partner, for example, likes to tell stories about, oh, I had just gone to the throne, but my uncle was the most powerful duke and he deposed me. So I had to plot to get my throne back, but he has like three sons who are after him. So do I want to murder them or do I want to like bide my time and wait for the next generation? And there's this witch or they say she's a witch and she's in my court but she's a great doctor, but the Pope wants me to kill her. And what do we do all this? All these great stories you can have in Crusader Kings because it's individual focused. And these are always more interesting stories than the stories in civilization, which is, so I built a temple and then I got got a great prophet and I founded a religion. And like every story is kind of the same because the game doesn't change a whole lot uh, from session to session, which I like about it, it's predictable and it can be very fun and interesting. Predictability is good and valuable in games, but Crusader Kings is a role-playing game. So there are more stories and there are more ways of doing things. Do you use poison? Do you use war? Do you use a marriage alliance? Do you ask the Pope for help? Do you say, get the Pope's permission to declare war on somebody or the Pope's permission to divorce your barren wife. Well, you can't divorce your barren wife because I'm good friends with the Holy Roman Emperor and he won't let it happen. And these are things that occur in Crusader Kings. Um, and it, it can, they happen all across the map. Wow. And it's so much depends on the focus. And I think when we move the focus in Crusader Kings from building from you know, building a great empire to telling a great story, we brought in people who generally weren't interested in strategy games, especially you know women who are have been kind of pushed away from war gaming by the old women like history too, and women are really interested in history. A lot of great historians, but they've been like because of the gatekeeping uh, historically yeah. throughout the industry has kept so many women away. They've been kind of scared off of our games, but they weren't scared out of role playing games as much, still to some extent, but not as much. But they come into Crusader Kings and see characters and stories and personalities and then say, oh, they, then they get into all of our other games. Oh, but this is history, I love history. <coughs> now I'm gonna play Yopin Rosales. Now I'm going to play Hearts of Iron. And it's a, welcome, it's a more welcoming onboarding sure. from a very uh-huh. intimate game to where the mechanics are personal and relatable. You know, my 
I think my wife is cheating on me and what does this mean for the throne? Very intimate, important question you get in Crusader Kings. And that on-ramps you into Europe Universalis where the question is, where do I colonize? Where's the best place to secure the kingdom and the empire? And then to Hearts of Iron Four, which is how do, how do I build tanks faster? Which is a much more boring question for a lot of people, but. Well, no, you almost sold me with the, you know, marrying the witch and, you know. <laughs> I, I, I highly recommend, I mean, I could, I could, I, I will happily hook you up to Crusader Kings. Is my wife a witch? Huh. <laughs> sometimes she is. Uh, sometimes she is. This is, a, this is more common in Crusader Kings 2, where we even have, where we could allow supernatural events to happen. You could throw a switch and you could have real witches show up and you could have a Joan of Arc character show up. And if a witch character and a Joan of Arc character showed up at the same court, fireworks. Nice. Lots of fun as your best general warrior decides to go on a purge through your court, hunting down all of the witches. So one thing that I might just jump in to yeah. call attention to here, because I think it's really interesting, is how a lot of a lot of what makes games compelling, and I say this as someone who used to play a, a lot of them, but no mm -hmm. longer really has time to so much, is that they force moments of decision where there isn't necessarily a clear best strategy or best next move to make. Yeah. So you sort of have to plan. And then when plans come to an end, you have to make a decision. And the satisfaction can oftentimes come from those decision points, right? Where yeah. you don't know what to do. You kind of go out on a limb and it either works or it doesn't in either way. It becomes interesting and satisfying because you felt like you had a kind of meaningful effect. Um, and it just occurs to me that from what you're describing here that we might be able to draw a broad distinction between games where one of the decisions you get to make is actually how and why you're playing the game. So if you play something like an Assassin's Creed game, which is this street level game, there's a narrative built in. Yeah. There's a certain amount of exploration that you can do. You can go off script, so to speak. But to really progress, there's a set of things that you're supposed to do. A quick glance at a strategy game forum, in particular for something like Crusader Kings or Europa Universalis, reveals all these sort of self-made challenges, like, you know, survive to the end of the game without building an army or create a country that stretches around the entire hemisphere of, of the world or something along these lines. And it's just interesting to me that that is now something that we can build into games, uh, not only, again, how you play the game. Those aren't the only interesting choices. It can also be what you're playing the game for. Yeah, I mean, self-direction is a very big part uh, of our brands, at least. I mean, uh, like there, you do get a score in Roby and Rosellos, but no one pays any attention to it. No one cares about your score. It is, what do I want to do with this? What do I want to build? Um, to some way, we can direct this through uh, if the online um, game store Steam, where you can buy all of our games, um, you can, there are achievements. And so little medals you can get for your account if you accomplish certain things. So uh, can you, one of them is, is, is Basilius. As Byzantium, restore the Roman Empire. We have uh, African power, own and have cores on all African provinces when you're playing Congo. Um, there are these little missions you can do to, you know, to dismantle the Roman Empire. So even if you don't start with a goal, you can say, I want to... I want to start as Ryuku, these three tiny mountainous islands off the coast of Japan and conquer the world from this unlikely place. We have a mm. reward for that. And there are these, some of these achievements are really easy just to get you to learn the game, get a royal marriage, 
uh, Unite Ireland, you know, little simple things to get you started. Um, <laughs> yeah. But then some of them get really, really uh, challenging, you know, like uh, win the Revolutionary War, uh, which is actually harder than you would think if you start in 1776. Uh, do the Reconquista in reverse, start as Granada and conquer Spain. You know, there are all of these different goals you can we, we have set, plus the ones a player can set for themselves. And player-directed satisfaction is such a big part, I think, of the paradox experience. And I think it's increasingly something that um, other strategy uh, game companies are turning towards as well, trying to make the focus not just how do I win, what does the win point look like, but... How, many, how much variety can I have from one play session to the next? It's easier in some games than others based on the design. Um, but yeah. it is certainly in, in our titles, a self-directed play is it, is, it is one of our core tenets in all of our strategy games. Well, maybe when I retire and I'll just dump all my libraries and get rid and I'll just retreat into a world of video games. And, <laughs> and yeah, no, 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 maybe by then... Um, I mean, it's a fairly recent uh, genre, it's a, you know, and industry. So who knows where it's going? Who knows where it'll be in a few decades? Um, well, it's, it, 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 it is it is for, for forty years, and we had forty years. That's nothing. You know, but we we we, we had Casablanca forty years into movies, and I think we're still waiting for our Casablanca. Yeah, you're right. There's just so much uh, for the industry to explore and to go forward, and I am very excited to see uh, a lot more historical stuff happening on the indie level. Um, and I do have hope that we will see something that will be about uh, Byzantium in one way or another, because I think it cool. is an, an underappreciated, uh, an underexplored uh, locus. What it sounds like we need is a conference where we get a bunch of Byzantinists and game designers together and talk about how to make fun mechanics out of the really dry, boring history that we're we're studying. Like, how do you make the <laughs> Byzantine tax system a really fun game to play? Oh, and that's your full note. <laughs> taxes man all right uh, troy i think we're out of time i want to thank you for joining us here and illuminating this world that was very opaque to me i've seen youtube clips and that's about it uh but i think i i'd like to learn more so thank you i was very happy to be here and thank you for the invitation it was a very nice conversation <laughs>